This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to part two of our three episode series on changing minds. In this series, we're doing something a little bit different. The three episodes of the series focus on the theme of changing minds, what it means to engage in dialogue with people with whom we disagree, sometimes deeply disagree, and the importance of civil discourse, particularly in this deeply polarized national moment. In the first episode of the series, I spoke with Daryl Davis about racism and how he envisions the possibility of changing the minds of those who believe and participate in white supremacist and separatist movements. He talked to me about his work and his views on navigating this particularly fraught moment. Daryl Davis is a black singer and author who has facilitated over 200 members of the KKK to leave the organization simply by befriending them and letting them know who he is. He's big on simply reaching out rather than censorship, and he has created a de-radicalization movement at change.minds.com to help people connect in a civil way online. In thinking about the ethics of technology, and in particular its relationship to our current moment of political, cultural, and ideological polarization, the ethics of technology extend far beyond how we use tech. Social media offers the potential for new connections or new levels of disconnect and partisanship. The ethics and the intentions that we bring to social media matter. And our approach starts far before we ever sit down at our computer to respond to a Facebook post or broadcast our views on our phones on Twitter. Those ethics start with how we imagine and how we practice civil discourse, how we think about meeting other folks where they are, considering the journey that led them to believe as they do. In my conversations with Daryl, we explore what those ethics can look like and how they can come to transform our approach to engaging in dialogue with distant others. Distant others can mean geographical distance. It can also mean political difference, ideological distance, or cultural difference. Daryl's work and his activism show an important alternative to the discord that dominates our current conversation and points us to the possibility of ethical engagement across that distance. Next week, in the final episode of the series, I sit down with Bill Ottman, the CEO of Minds.com, a social media platform that provides an alternative to Facebook and that seeks to prioritize privacy, transparency, and open exchange. Building on my conversations with Daryl in the first two episodes, Bill and I explore the relationship between tech and civil discourse and ways that we can all be part of creating a healthier and more vibrant national conversation, not in spite of our differences and distances, but because of them. And now here's part two of my conversation with Daryl. What I understand transpired after that initial meeting with Roger Kelly was a series of dialogues and encounters and moments where you would step into the very uncomfortable position, I would imagine, of going to a KKK rally. He would come to your house to connect with you. And I have a question about that. You've talked quite a bit about what compelled you to want to talk to these KKK members. What do you think makes them want to talk to you? Why did Roger Kelly keep agreeing to your invitation to dialogue in these in these intimate spaces at times? 
at your house, at your table. What was compelling him to want to continue that dialogue? Okay, well, a couple of things. One, you know, as I told you, I, I grew up all around the world. I've been to 57 different countries between my childhood travels and my, um, my adulthood travels as a musician. And I've met all kinds of different kinds of people, different religions, different languages, different looks, different colors of skin, cultures, etc. And when I come home, I conclude one thing. No matter how far I go from this country, whether it's right next door to Mexico or Canada, or whether it's halfway around the world, and no matter how many different kinds of people I meet, when I come back home, I conclude we all are human beings. And as such, we all want the same basic five core values in our life. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we want the same thing for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And as long as we can keep those core values and employ them as we traverse society, we will have a better time navigating that society if we use those five core values, even the society of white supremacy. All right. So in dealing with Roger Kelly, you know, he didn't know that I was black when he first came to the hotel. Right. Uh, but he came in the room and we talked. I, I allowed him to be heard. You know, I didn't push back on anything that he said. And, and I'll give you an example of something. Uh, when I would ask my question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? A response that I would get, well, Mr. Davis, you know, black people are prone to crime. You know, you, 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 you can see there are more blacks in prison than, than white people. There are more black criminals than white criminals. All you have to do is look at our prison system. There are more blacks there than whites. What he is saying is true, right? But it's a half-truth. He sees that there are more blacks in prison than whites. So therefore, in his mind, there must be more black criminals than white, than white criminals. But he's not considering why those blacks are in prison. It's because of the imbalance in our judicial system, right? So then he goes on. Now, I don't push back. I'm just listening to him, right? Then he goes on to say that black people are inherently lazy, that we prefer to scam the government welfare system. We don't want to work. We always have our hand out for a freebie. Well, the truth be told, there are more whites on welfare in this country than blacks. Whites outnumber blacks in this country. All right. But he's not considering that. So then he says to me that, and I've heard this a million times since by other white supremacists, Black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. White people have a larger brain. The larger the, the brain, the more capacity there is for intelligence. The smaller the brain, the less IQ. So, and he says this is evidenced by the fact that consistently, year after year, black high school students score lower on the SATs than white kids. Again, this is true. The data shows that, but he's not considering the fact that where do most black kids go to school? In the inner city. Where do most white kids go to school? In the suburbs. It's a well-known fact that inner city schools are not as good as suburban schools. They don't have the funding and the facilities, right? 
And I can guarantee you that the black kids who go to school in the suburbs score just as high, if not higher, than some of the white kids on the SATs. The white kids who go to school in the inner cities, they score just as low, if not lower, than some of the black kids. It has absolutely nothing to do with a person's skin color or the size of their brain, but it has everything to do with the educational system in which that student is enrolled. But he's not seeing all that. All he's seeing are the scores. So, you know, one's one's perspective is one's reality. You cannot change somebody's reality. They have to change that for themselves. All right? Uh, so, and that's another mistake that we make, just like attacking the symptoms. We, we try to attack people's realities. No, you're wrong. That's not right. You know, you're believing the wrong thing. That does not work. All that does is reinforce their reality because you're trying to attack them. What you have to do is offer them different perspectives. When they see another perspective that they resonate with, they will change their own reality. That's how you facilitate change. Not by going after their reality, but offering them another perspective. All right? So here's what happens. Um, Roger Kelly or any white supremacist walks into a room, sees me, automatically he, he, he wants to radiate vitriol because I'm inferior to him. He is superior. That's what makes him a white supremacist. He is supreme, and I'm the inferior one, right? So he's going he's to tell me that I'm a criminal, that I'm lazy, and that uh, my brain is small. I'm unintelligent. And usually when you tell somebody that kind of thing, you're going to get pushback. You know, someone's going to challenge you and push back. And, and you might get, you know, uh, assaulted verbally. And it might, it might even escalate to, to a physical confrontation. But now here I am, I'm just sitting back listening to him. And I'm not pushing back. So that's throwing him off his game. Because when he walks into my room, his wall is up. If I try to share or impart wisdom or information with him when his wall is up, it's going to hit, it's going to hit that brick wall and bounce back. Because when the wall is up, his ears are shut and he's not hearing anything I say. So what I want to do is bring the temperature down, bring that wall down. And then when you bring the wall down, the ears open up. So I'm listening to him. I am employing some of those five core values. I'm allowing him to be heard. I'm showing him that respect. I'm treating him fairly. Now, when I say respect, don't mis mis misunderstand. I'm not respecting what he's saying. I'm simply respecting his right to say it. Now, people always ask me, well, don't you find what he's saying to be offensive? Of course, what he is saying is offensive. Am I offended by it? No. Why am I not offended by it? because it doesn't apply to me. This guy doesn't even know me. He just walked in my room 10 minutes ago and all he sees is the color of my skin. Why should I be offended by a lie? Now, if my mother or father were to tell me, well, Daryl, you know, you're, you're lazy and, and, uh, and you know, your, your brain is small and you're kind of dumb, perhaps I might believe that because they brought me into this world. They raised me, but not somebody who just walked in my room 10 minutes ago and all he sees is the color of my skin and he's going to make these assertions. 
I mean, that would be like me saying, oh, well, because you have dark hair, that makes you less intelligent than somebody who, ha who has blonde hair. You know, you're not, you know, you might think I'm, I'm offending you, but you're not going to be offended by it. You, you know who you are, you know, so you must always have your own self-esteem in check before you go into a room with somebody like that. Because if you don't have your esteem in check, they will tell you who you are. And depending upon how low your self-esteem is, you might walk out of that room believing them. So I'm, I don't get offended by that, by that kind of stuff. I keep my emotions behind me. Okay, and then uh, he's wondering, how come this guy isn't pushing back? That's not what he's used to. He's used to getting pushback from all these insults. So now he's getting curious, like, what is he thinking? And his wall is down. After he exhausts all this vitriol, he feels compelled to reciprocate. You know, I, I gave him that respect. I, I allowed him to be heard. I treated him fairly. Now he wants to hear from me, especially as to why I haven't pushed back on anything he said. So now it's my turn to talk, right? I could attack him. And I would, I would be well within my right to say, no, you are the criminal. You are the one hanging black men from trees and bombing black churches and dragging people behind pickup trucks. And I would be 100% correct because the Klan has a history of doing that. All right. But if I did that, the wall would go right back up because I'm attacking him. So rather than go on the offense, I go on the defense. And I say, listen, I hear what you're saying. However, I don't have a criminal record. I've never been on welfare. I've never measured the size of my brain, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's. And as far as my SAT scores go, they were good enough to get me into university and I have a bachelor's degree. Now I'm saying all this stuff because I've already done my homework, knowing that this guy barely made it out of high school. So I could throw it in his face, knowing that I have more intelligence in my little finger than he and his whole clan put together. But I'm not going to do that. You know, that would just cause the wall to go back up. I just defend myself. And then here's what happens. And I've seen this happen time and time and time again over the last 37 years. When he goes home, just like you're going to do, I'm going to do, we all do, we reflect at the end of the day everything that transpired during the day. And he's going to think to himself, man, I just had a three-hour conversation with some black guy, and we didn't fight. You know, we, we disagreed on some things, but we didn't fight. And, and what that black guy said about such and such, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said about this and that and the other is true. Oh, but he's black. So they begin having a cognitive dissonance where he knows it's true, but he cannot accept that it came from a black source. How can a black person know the truth? And, and he didn't know it at first. Now he finds out. Finds out. So it just doesn't compute for him. It, it's, like, it's like me. It, it didn't compute to me that my parents were telling me that there are some people with, with white skin who, who don't like you because because of the color of your skin when it, it just did not compute with me so it does not compute with him that this black person knows knows something that he didn't know and he found that out to be true so now he has a dilemma with this cognitive dissonance the the, the uh, dilemma is do I disregard Daryl's skin color and believe this to be true because I know it's true and change my direction or do I consider that he's black and continue living a lie? That's their dilemma. 
Fortunately, in my case, many of them go the right way. They believe the truth and, and, and they change. There will always be some who will never change. They will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. But even those people, if they take the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with you, there is a possibility of your being able to plant a seed and that seed may bloom later on. The course I teach on ethical technology includes a long historical philosophical tradition in which you participate and that you practice. And a cornerstone of that is Plato's dialogues. Those dialogues meditate on the nature of the good, virtue, and truth. And of course, as I try to emphasize to my students, the formative dimension of the dialogues, aside from all of the discourse about the nature of the good, is precisely that they are dialogues. I think that one thing Plato's telling us is that in and beyond any concept of virtue or policy about ethical practice, there's an important prior commitment to what you practice, this act of dialogue, to searching for truth by externalizing an idea and presenting it to somebody else who can scrutinize it, not scrutinize as in argue with you, but rather raise important counterpoints or questions. Then you do the same to them. And in that process of going back and forth with the aims of understanding, both parties can pursue the truth. What do you identify as the kind of ethical corners? By exhibiting credibility and honesty and transparency. Uh, because, you know, whether somebody likes you or not is irrelevant. If they find you to be credible, they will respect you. And here's the thing. You only have, everybody only has one opportunity to make a good first impression. You know, we may have a second opportunity or third opportunity to make an impression if we're lucky, but only one opportunity, opportunity to make a good first impression. And most people will base their, their uh, judgment of you based upon their first impression of you. So you must always be credible and transparent. Even if they don't like you, if they find you to be credible, they will respect you. And if they respect you, there's a chance that um, you might have a second opportunity to get together with them. And like I said, the first opportunity is, a, is, a, is the planting of a seed. But just planting the seed doesn't, doesn't do much. You know, you must come back and pour water on that seed, you know, so that it grows. And so I always want to have, you know, multiple visits with people. I know people, you know, I'm not trying to change somebody, but I've been the impetus for them to change. And that comes through multiple conversations. So, you know, I want to be able to come back and visit with them um, on, on that kind of thing. So like, for example, if, um, if somebody asks you out for a date and, and you go out with, them, with this person who you don't know and they don't impress you that first time around and they ask you out for a second date, you're probably going to find an excuse not to go. But if you're impressed that first time, you say, yeah, okay, that's cool. We know we can go out again in a couple weeks. So, you know, I try to be credible. I, I try to make a good first impression uh, because I want them, you know, wh whether they... They, they like me or not because of the color of my skin, if they find me to be credible and transparent and I say to them, hey, listen, I appreciate you know the time you spent with me and everything you said. Give me a couple of weeks to, just to process it 
And then can I, can I get together again with you in a couple of weeks and, uh, and just, you know, reevaluate whatever. Yeah. Okay, cool. But if they didn't like me, I made a bad impression that first time they're like, no, we're done. <laughs> I'm not going to see you anymore. So that's my ethic. As I was reading some of your interviews and thinking about your work, it came to me that another way to think about this ethic or this point of dialogue and discourse, particularly with those who have a different point of view, is not only, I think, the vital search for truth, but also one, I think, essential definition of what we might call creativity. And what I mean by that is when we externalize a thought, and then when that thought encounters another thought, both thoughts become refined, they mold, they shape as they interact with one another. And out of that dialogue, we actually have our thoughts molded or to use one other metaphor that's consonant with, with your work, harmonized. And I thought about this definition of creativity and this, this relationship between dialogue and creativity uh, because you are, among many things, a jazz musician. Do you see a link between the value and practice of music in your life and the value and practice of dialogue? Absolutely. And it's not just jazz. My degree is in jazz, but I play blues, country, rock and roll, R&B. But uh, yes, okay. And let me put it this way. You know, you mentioned uh, you used a couple of musical terms, you know, harmony, creativity, uh, jazz. You know, jazz is based upon improvisation. That's create. That's you know, creating something on the spot, and that's what I do. As as a band leader, which is what I am, it's my job to foster harmony on my stage between the various voices that are in my band whether they are vocal voices or whether they are the instrumental voices of the piano, the bass, the drums, the guitar, the saxophone, or whatever else. I want harmony, all right? I don't want dissonance unless I interject that dissonance intentionally. And sometimes, you know, in music, sometimes sometimes we, we uh, inject dissonance for effect, you know? Certain chords give a certain effect. So... If, if the dissonance happens intentionally, that's okay. It's part of the music. If it happens just randomly, you know, you're playing some song and all of a sudden, boom, there's some kind of dissonance going on. That is not music. That's noise. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody hit a bad note. Somebody sang out of tune. You know, somebody dropped their instrument on the floor or something. Um, we, we try to avoid that kind of dissonance. For the most part, as band leaders, we want harmony on our stage because it sounds good. It makes us feel good. It reverberates with our body. Our rhythms are in harmony uh, and it's a good feeling. That's what makes your audience clap their hands in time or feel, or they want to get up and dance or they're feeling good. You know, it's the harmonies of everybody on that stage. Well, of course, if that's what I do in my, in my professional life, when I walk off that stage and I'm done with my gig and I'm walking through society, I want harmony around me. I want harmony of the people that are around me, whether I'm walking around in the, in, in the mall shopping or I'm, or I'm at a party or, you know, whatever I'm doing, I want, I want to be surrounded with harmony, not just on my bandstand, but in my society, in my everyday life. I don't want to have to come off uh, a harmonious bandstand and then have to fight everybody in the street. You know, so yes, absolutely. You know, music is is a bridge, uh, and it, and it fosters harmony and creativity. Um, 
I'll give you an example of something. I'll give you two examples. Here's a hypothetical one. All right. So let's say uh, I'm off on a, on a weekend. I take the weekend off from, from playing. So instead of being the entertainer, I want to be entertained. I want to dance. I want to go out and have a good time. So Friday night, I'm going to go down to, go down to the club down the street. And they have live music there, uh, either a band or a DJ. Either way, they have music and they got a dance floor. So now I want to dance. So I go down to the club and a good song comes on that I like. I want to dance to it. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look around the, the club and see if I see any single women, you know, who are not attached to somebody who might want to dance. And I see you and I don't know you and you're sitting at the bar and you're patting your hand on top of the bar in beat to the music. So obviously you like that song that, you know, that's being played. So I recognize that. So I come over to you and I say, hey, excuse me, you know, would you care to dance? You say, yeah. And so you pop off the bar stool and you and I walk out onto the dance floor. And if it's a slow song that's playing, we're wrapped around each other and turning slowly around on the dance floor. Now, I don't even know you, but yet we're embraced like this, right? If it's a fast song, you know, then we're apart and we're shaking and whatever else, right? At the end of the song, being a gentleman, I'm going to escort you back to your seat. Okay, oh, hey, thank you for the dance. And I say, you know, my name is Daryl. You shake my hand. You say, my name is Deb. And um, and then, you know, I say to you, so Deb, you know, what do you do? And you say, well, um, I'm the vice president of, of marketing for Microsoft, um, you know, East Coast Division or something. You know, you're making half a million dollars a year. And you say, so Daryl, what do you do? And I say, well, uh, uh, I'm a cashier at, uh, at McDonald's Hamburgers. Well, <laughs> I'm making less than 10 grand a year. So where would two people at opposite ends of the economic spectrum, a vice president of some major corporation and some, you know, guy who, who works at McDonald's come that close, even this close to where we're embracing one another and dancing around the dance floor without even knowing each other's name. Music, music did that. And music has that ability because everybody likes music. People who, who work white collar jobs, blue collar jobs, the person who comes around Saturday mornings in the, in the trash truck and picks up your garbage cans, uh, pe people who teach at universities, people who, who, are, who are bartenders, people who are computer programmers, you know, everybody likes music. And you find them all in that setting of that bar that has a band or a DJ, all right? And now I'll give you, I just gave you a hypothetical. Here is a real one. Uh, when I first started playing in that, uh, in that country band, you know, I told you about the guy who um, compared me to playing like, like, uh, like Jerry Lee Lewis. The guy got up from his table and came and approached me. And it was the music that attracted him to me. And I can tell you something for sure. Had I walked into that bar, not as a musician, but just somebody who wanted to come in there and dance, I will guarantee you I would have had to fight my way out of that bar. As I told you before, it was a, a, a bar where blacks are not welcome. They could come in, but they were not welcome. 
So if I'm just there to dance, who would I be dancing with? White women that are in that bar. And that would piss off a lot of people. So, you know, the fact that I played that music that he liked so much is what attracted a Klansman to get up from his table and walk across the dance floor and put his arm around my shoulder and want to drag me back over to his table and buy me a drink. Music did that. I want to make sure we talk about the tech dimension of civil discourse, um, something that in the wake of the last four years has become an increasing concern for those who value civil discourse. I guess the question, or or at least one question that comes up for me, um, inevitably in our contemporary environment, when we're so sequestered in our own truth bubbles and when we're so isolated because of this pandemic, and as we're increasingly able to self-select who we want to talk to, we're not connecting with people at bars, we're not connecting with each other to dance over music, we're sitting around in our own houses in isolation. And as we increasingly have the ability to choose exactly and only who we want to engage with, I guess the question that comes up is how do we even connect with those who disagree with us? Well, for many, you know, talking to an enemy would be a difficult challenge to start off with. The first challenge would be... How do you, how do you connect with somebody who may disagree with you? In our moment in particular of isolation. Okay, all you got to do is just uh, go on Facebook and express an opinion. And I'll guarantee you somebody out there would disagree with you. And thus the argument starts. Do you find that that's a productive way of finding people to disagree with and and a productive place to have that happen? Well, it's productive if that's your goal, Uh to find people to to disagree with. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because there'll be a million within an hour. I'll guarantee you. You know, but um, I mean, all kidding aside, man, I mean, that is true. Mm -hmm. But. It depends upon, you know, what, you know, what are you looking to get to engage in? Are you looking to engage in uh, exploring your opinions on abortion or on nuclear weapons, on uh, global warming, on the war in the Middle East or the current presidency? Did, you know, was the, was the election rigged? I mean, these are all different topics and, you know, that are hot topics. You have your opinion and you know, somebody else has, has an opposite opinion. So, you know, find out, um, Pick and choose a topic in which you want to engage in and then go, you know, go on social media on, on, on some of these platforms and ask, say, hey, you know, I want to talk about something. Uh, I want to know how you feel about such and such and say, you know, you can, you can even frame it as I don't want to debate it because, you know, as soon as you say debate, um, the walls go up, people put on the boxing gloves and they're ready to go. Frame it as a conversation. Hey, I want to hear your ideas and your thoughts on on the presidential election or on the Capitol insurrection or whatever the, you know, the topic is. Frame it as a conversation. That way the temperature is down and people can talk back and forth. Of course, you know, you are going to debate some issues, but when you frame it as a conversation, that term has less aggression to it than the term debate. There's a documentary that came out a few months ago called The Social Dilemma, and it shares a common belief that many others have expressed that we're more polarized than ever. Now, I tend to be cautious about claims that we're living in a time that is different and exceptional or more severe uh, or extreme than others. I think we're probably not as polarized, for example, as a com- as a country as we were during the Civil War or Reconstruction, but I'm willing to be talked out 
of my position or correct it. Do you think that this is a time where we are more polarized than previous times here in the United States? And do you think that polarization is the consequence of the advent of technology in particular? Or is it just more evident now that we can see it on a daily basis? What do you think? Well, all of the above. And and let me be specific. Um, Technology has allowed us to, to have access to things a lot quicker. Sometimes we see things unfold on Facebook before they make the six o'clock or the 11 o'clock news. You know, somebody live streams something or somebody reports something or, or on Twitter or on, you know, whatever, Instagram. Uh, there are all these platforms in which people get little tidbits of information. So they have this a lot quicker. And <clears throat> if it's negative information, uh, it can create polarization. It can uh, foster fear and things like that. So technology is a is a good thing, uh, but it depends upon how it's being used because it can be a bittersweet thing as well, sort of like fire. Fire uh, can, it can be a double-edged sword. For example, uh, if you're cold, I can, I can bring fire to your house and heat your house uh, and keep you warm. If um, if I'm pissed off at you, I can bring fire to your house and burn your house down. So, you know, fire can be good, fire can be bad, depending upon whose hands it's in and, and what intention is, is, it's being used for. So that's the same thing with, uh, with social media. The whole thing is really kind of new. And uh, anytime, you know, you promote something that has positive consequences, somebody is going to figure out a way to exploit it to do just the opposite. It's like, you know, the cops have these radar guns, and, you know, and they point them at cars that are coming down the street to see how fast you're going. And then, you know, if, if you're exceeding a posted speed limit, they wave you over and they give you a ticket. Well, then, so how do we combat that? Well, we go out and we buy a radar detector that, that beeps, you know, if there's radar in the area. And that way we slow down, you know. And But guess what? The same, believe it or not, the same company that makes the radar gun for the cops is the same company that makes the radar uh, detector for the consumer. So that company is smart. They're getting money from both ends. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, so this is how we have to have to view technology. Uh, there are people who exploit it, you know, for their own uh, greed purposes. Uh, they, you know, they they put things out there to cause. Uh, people to think a certain way, to um, or, or if they want to sell something, they have these algorithms, you know, that uh, that see, you know, what you look at, you know, what you're attracted to, your conversations, and then they target, you know, they target you. Uh, you know, music can do the same thing. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, I majored in music, and and you can get a degree in in, a, in something called music therapy. And which is still kind of relatively new, even though it's been around for, you know, 30 years or something or more. Uh, it's still relatively new because we've just cracked the tip of the iceberg on it. Um, there are certain kinds of music that are played in psych wards to keep people calm. There are certain kinds of music that can get your, 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 your body going. You know, that's why they use certain songs during aerobics class. Um, in jail, if, you know, if, if people, if the prisoners are getting restless, They'll play certain kinds of music to calm you down. They play certain kinds of music in the dentist's office to keep you calm while somebody's drilling in your mouth. Uh, don't think 
that the music you hear in shopping malls is just some random, you know, music system playing. Though, you know, those instrumentals and those songs are designed to to cause you to shop and spend money. So, you know, technology and these platforms can do the same thing. And so, depending upon whose hands they're in and how they're controlled, uh, can determine how good they are, how bad they are. A lot of them now, I think, you know, coming under under fire for determining who can be on those platforms and who gets kicked off or gets put in a platform jail or something, suspended for a while. I wanted to ask you a question on that point, because I guess we can't really talk about tech and social media platforms in particular right now without talking about the moment that people in tech leadership positions decided in the wake of the January 6th violence at the Capitol to determine a hard limit to including certain voices and specifically certain accounts in their social platform network. And in that moment, Facebook and Twitter banned not only the the former president, but also many users who amplified and augmented his message from using their platform. Do you think that private platforms should have that right? Uh, Should platforms draw the line? And where do you think the line should be drawn? Okay, this would be my personal opinion. So let's, let's define some things here. If something is private, then they have the right to do whatever they want to do. It's private. If it's a public platform that anybody can get on and so forth and so on, uh, then they, you know, the, the, the rules may be a little, a little varied as to, you know, who, who they can expel without offending somebody else. Like, for example, um, if they're targeting me because I'm black uh, or they're targeting a woman, you know, because they don't feel that a woman should have the same voice that a man has. On a, on a public platform, uh, you know, that's not going to fly very well. Uh, now, Twitter, uh, you, we would consider Twitter to be a public platform, right? Okay, so we're talking about the former president. Uh, should he have been uh, banned from Twitter? Uh, my opinion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Uh, now, if you were to say the things that he said that got him banned, and they tried to ban you, I would know. I would I would stick up for you one hundred percent. I would say no. You you know you, you should not ban her. But uh, but the president, yes, absolutely. Why? Because he is held to a higher standard of responsibility and accountability. For example, let's take the police. For example, you can go out and buy a gun if you want. Uh, you go to the gun store and you buy one. And, you know, you get a background check. And if you pass, you don't have any criminal record and you have a good reason to have one, they give you a gun or, or you buy it. The police are issued what I call a, a 007 license. That's a license to kill, right? They have the right to pull out their gun and shoot somebody. And chances are they can get away with it. Because we've seen that happen too many times. And yes, there are times when they have to shoot somebody, and justifiably so. But there are plenty of times when they've shot people for no reason other than holding their cell phone or holding their wallet. And usually these are black people. Um, So that police officer, when you give him a gun, he is held to a higher standard of accountability. He can't just pull out the gun because he wants to and start shooting it. Right? When you have control of, 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 of a mouthpiece 
and and you are you are the most powerful man in the world or one of them and you are shouting fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire yes you need to be banned you need to be locked up and and let me say this the supreme court ruled you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater unless there is a fire you know the reason behind that right it's public endangerment. If there's no fire, people get panic and they get trampled on and some might even die. As the man responsible for protecting this country, when you tell people to go storm someplace uh, based on a lie, because, because you, you, you're lying to them, telling them that the election was stolen and this, that, and the other, and blah, 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 you are endangering people's lives on a lie because you know there are going to be some people who are going to believe you and they're going to act that way. If I told you to go rob a bank and you went and robbed the bank, I'm responsible as well, too. So the president of the United States is held to a higher standard than, you know, just some some ordinary person, you know, mouthing off on Twitter. I, I, I would not have the ability to get on Twitter and, and, and cause an insurrection. He does have that ability and he used it the wrong way. So, yes, I, I agree 100 percent. Take away his mouthpiece. I ask this question from a deeply personal sense of curiosity. Oftentimes I find that when I enter into dialogue with somebody where I realize that on that topic, they are just not interested in being talked out of their position for whatever reason, and they're not interested in changing their mind, I realize that after a while, we just don't share what I would consider to be the basic principles of dialogue. And I consider those principles of dialogue to be a shared set of axioms, a shared set of Uh, self-evident truths, a shared set of facts about reality. Now, within the constraint of these shared things, I think that I can disagree with my interlocutor about, for example, premises or the logic of an argument um, or a conclusion or about how we feel, even the emotional response to things. But if I, for example, axiomatically believe in human rights and they axiomatically do not believe in human rights, or if I believe that in the year 1948, the international community legally declared human rights to be a reality, and they claim that it never happened, we're unlikely to agree about anything further. For example, whether or not a government violated a human rights law in a specific case. You present a model of somebody who seems willing to talk to people with whom you deeply disagree or who deeply disagree with you to the extreme. Is there anybody that you won't talk to? Or are there limitations or guidelines or requirements that you would advise others to enlist when engaging an interlocutor from an oppositional point of view? I can't think of anybody, anybody off the top of my hand that I would not talk to, but I realize, you know, that there are people, you know, that you point out who do exist, who simply are not interested in hearing anything that contradicts uh, what, uh, what they believe. Uh, there are plenty of those kinds of people. So I don't try to tell them what to think. I just offer them options of how to think. I just offer them different perspectives, and then I let it go with that. Because again, they will reflect on those perspectives, not perhaps not right where you are right in that moment, but later on, perhaps that evening, perhaps next week, something will trigger it, and they'll, and they'll begin thinking about it. Um, I'll give you an example of something. This uh, exalted Cyclops, which is a district leader in the Klan, was riding around in my car with me one time. And we got to talking about crime. 
And he made the comment, I'm driving, he's in the passenger seat. He made the comment that, uh, that all black people have within us a gene that makes us violent. And I asked him to explain that. And he said, who was doing all the drive-bys and carjackings in Southeast? He was referring to Southeast Washington, D.C., which is predominantly black. There's some white people who live there, but it's predominantly black and is generally pretty high crime ridden. And I said, okay, it's black people. I said, but that's what lives there. You know, you're not considering the demographics. I said, who's doing all the crime in Bangor, Maine? White people, because that's who lives there. And he says, no, 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 the demographics have nothing to do with it. You know, you all have a gene within you. You're born with it. You know, that, that, that makes you violent. And so I said, look, man, I said, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I said, I have never done a drive-by. I've never done a carjacking. I said, how do you explain that? He didn't even hesitate one second to think about it. He said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. How do you argue with somebody who is that far gone into left field somewhere? You know, he, he's in... QAnon territory, you know, uh, and I didn't know what to say. I, I was speechless. You know, you, you can't even bite into that and, and chew on it to argue. It's so far out. So he's sitting next to me in my passenger seat, all smug and secure, like, uh huh, you see, you, you know, you can't, you can't even retort. Um, he, he, he believes what he believes. So I thought about it for a moment. And then I said, well, you know, all white people, have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. And he says, well, how do you figure? I said, name me three black serial killers. He couldn't do it. I named one for him. I said, here, I'm going to give you one. I named one. I said, just give me two. He couldn't do it. I said, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, on and on, Jack the Ripper. I said, all of those serial killers are white. Son, you are a serial killer. He says, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. <laughs> he goes, well, that's stupid. I said, well, duh. I said, you're right, it is stupid. I said, but it's no more stupid for me to say that about you than what you said about me. Within five, listen, within five months, that guy quit the Klan and his robe was the first robe I ever got based upon that stupid argument. How many robes do you have now? I have between 54 and 57, I think. I wish that I could think that quickly on my feet. That's enormous. That's absolutely enormous. What a great story. There's a question that comes up to me with regard to the breaking news of today. And that breaking news is that as of today, President Biden has signed a series of executive actions aimed at increasing equity across the nation and dismantling racism through a series of specific policies, strengthening anti-discrimination housing policies that were weakened under President Trump, um, mixing federal contracts with private prisons, and investing in historically Black colleges and universities, just to cite a few of these measures. It made me wonder about the relationship between change enacted through law and change enacted through culture by means such as civil discourse and art and music and literature, et cetera. How do you understand the relationship between the two? If we want to dismantle racism, I'm quoting a senior Biden official's term here, do we start with laws and policies or do we start with the culture? 
I think it has to be a two-pronged thing. The culture definitely has to has to come forward, and and the laws have to be in place, because, like for example, you take the, the the bus boycott, of 1955 with Rosa Parks, uh, the law was blacks had to sit in the back of the bus. That was the law. You know, you you didn't give up your seat for you know for a white person if there if there were no more seats you know in in the bus, you you know you you get arrested. That was the law. At the same time, what did we do? We changed the culture by having that boycott of, of you know, instead of going, you know, we went to courts, you know, courts, you know, didn't do anything. So Martin Luther King came up with the idea, of, okay, we're not going to um, to ride the bus. Uh, and and most, most people who rode the bus in Montgomery, Alabama at the time were black people. They didn't have cars. The white people had the cars. And, and where did those black people work? They worked for some white person out in the suburbs as a maid, as a nanny, as a whatever. So now these white people had to drive into town, into the inner city, right? And pick up the black people and drive them out to the suburbs to do their job. Or black people began to carpool. If, if one or two of them had a car, they would carpool and, and go out there. So now these buses are riding around empty and they're not making any money and they're burning gas. So the culture changed that. And so the, the bus companies finally said, okay, fine, we give in. Okay, you know, you, you can do whatever you want to do. The laws changed in Montgomery, Alabama. As a result of the laws changing with the Montgomery bus lines, all the other southern states that were practicing the same thing changed on their own. They were like, uh-oh, you know, Dr. King will, will be here next. You know, just go ahead and change. So without without Martin Luther King going to you know, Mississippi and wherever else, Florida and North Carolina, they change on their own. So the culture and the laws have to work hand in hand. But, you know, we have to understand something that even though, you know, laws, laws can compel behavior, but they cannot compel attitude. So the day the law changed on the bus that allowed me to sit in the front, if I wanted to sit in the front, didn't mean that all of a sudden white people said, okay, that's cool. I, I like that. You know, they still felt the same way, but they couldn't do anything about it because if they did, they'd go to jail. So the culture has to be there right alongside so that people are exposed to the culture and understand it and don't fear it. I mean, this is a really interesting question for me in particular because I come at my interest in ethical technology for a background in, on the one hand, law and on the other hand, literature. So I'm really interested in how these two intersect. But I think that this question becomes much more complicated when we think about law, not as this abstract set of policies, but as an activity of enforcement. And I think the question that I'm asking here to you becomes much more complicated when we think about the role that legal structure, particularly the arm of the law that resides in law enforcement, as in the police, has played in contradistinction to combating racism but rather enabling its activity on, on multiple levels. You talked about the link between the police and the Klan. How should we think about the law and law enforcement, given the alarming number of links between the police and racism, sometimes as severe as having figures of law enforcement simultaneously participating in militant right-wing communities? Well, you have to go back to why the police were even created in the first place. The first police in, in this country were created for the sole purpose of, of monitoring slaves to make sure they didn't escape, you know, the plantations and stuff. That's why they had laws 
saying that um, you know no more than than three or four black people could could congregate together at the same time because they were they were they were worried that that you know people were conspiring to escape or something, and of course you know, they were right because <laughs> you know nobody wants to be enslaved, and it was the police job to monitor those people, and then of course it grew it grew from that. Um, there has to be more communication between police and the community in which it serves. Uh, the motto for the police across this country, they take an oath to what? To serve and protect. And that to me is just a little too open-ended. It does not say to serve who or to protect who. So in the black community, it's presumed they mean to serve and protect each other as opposed to the community. Um, it's like, you know, the the Tea Party. Uh, we'd never heard of a Tea Party except for the Boston Tea Party back during the Revolutionary War. But then, you know, uh, a few years ago, in, during uh, Obama's administration, a new political group came called the Tea Party. And they had, a, and their slogan was, take our country back. We're going to take our country back. That is a Klan slogan from 1954 when Brown versus the Board of Education desegregated schools. There were Klan rallies all across the country with, you know, burning crosses and guys on robes and hoods on megaphones saying, we're going to take our country back, meaning back to segregation, right? They didn't want uh, things to be integrated. So now, years later, the Tea Party is using that same slogan. And I've, I've questioned them. And I've said, you know, why are you all using a Klan slogan? Oh, no, 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 we don't mean it like that. I said, are you aware that that is a Klan slogan? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. But we're using it in a different context. I said, look, you leave it open-ended. You don't say, take our country back from who or take our country back to what. What am I supposed to think? And I said, oh, well, Mr. Davis, what we mean is we're going to take our country back from the Democrats. We're going to take our country back to Republican rule. Okay, I can accept that. That's fine. Why not say that? You know, but here's the problem. Jimmy Carter was a Democrat. Bill Clinton was a Democrat. Where was the Tea Party then? Where was Take Our Country Back then? Now, all of a sudden, a black man gets in the White House and you're screaming, we're going to take our country back. It has a different implication now. So, you know, that's what, you know, where, where that serve and protect thing comes in. They don't say serve and protect who. And so we assume it's each other because we all are aware of the blue wall of silence or the blue code of silence where cops, you know, protect each other. Um, so there has to be more accountability for police. And there has to be, I'll put it this way. People always talk about two categories of police good cops and bad cops. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I respect law enforcement. My father was, was was one of the first Secret Service agents in this country. He wanted to be an FBI agent. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was a racist and a male chauvinist, among other things, was not hiring any blacks or any women for the FBI. Uh, so my father went to the Secret Service. And uh, Harry Anslinger, who was the head of the Secret Service at the time, uh, he hired five black men at one time. Those were the first five blacks to ever be on the Secret Service. And my father was one of those five. 
and, and he rose up through the ranks um, as high as they would let a black person go at the time. But anyway, that, that was before he joined the Foreign Service. Uh, anyway, so I have I have respect for law enforcement, but here's the problem. We all we, we only hear about these two categories: good cops and bad cops. There's a third category that nobody talks about, and I'll get that to you in a second. You know, anytime you know there's some transgression that some police officer has committed, if it's a big major deal, the PIO, public information officer, comes on TV or the uh, chief comes on TV and says, uh, well, you know, the, our officer feel for his life. He followed proper police procedure. Those are always the call words. He feared for his life. That gives him the right to draw the gun and fire it. Uh, and, and chances are he will get off. He will not be convicted of that. In the rare instances where the cop is convicted of wrongdoing, and, um, and he's fired and terminated from the police force. Then the PIO comes back on the air or the chief comes on and says, well, you know, in a department this large, we're bound to have a few bad apples. Uh-uh. There are more bad apples than there are good apples. There, there are way more than a few. I'll tell you how, how it works. The third category. We all know what bad cops do. A good cop will not do those things, but the good cop will turn a blind eye to what's going on. The third category is the honest cop. The honest cop will not do those things, and the honest cop will tell. The honest cop will blow the whistle. He or she will break that blue coat of silence. And therefore, the honest cop is in the minority. And why... why, uh, do other cops fear doing that? Because they fear retaliation, not from the criminals, but from their own kind. What happens is if they go on, on, a, on a call and, and their life is endangered, they call for backup. And so it goes over the airwaves. And the cops in the area hear that officer so-and-so is in trouble. Uh, but officer so-and-so is a snitch. So I'm not going to go respond. He's on his own. That's retaliation. Do you remember a movie called Serpico? Frank Serpico was his name. He, he's still alive. He was a real uh, NYPD officer. He was an honest cop. And you know, he didn't take any bribes. He, he did not put up with uh, his partners doing police brutality or anything like that. And he reported it. And as a result, they tried to kill him. They shot him in the face. So, you know, this is what happens. Retaliation. Just like, you know, if you snitch on the mafia, they will come after you. Same thing in the Klan, you know, a lot of these pe people. So nobody likes a snitch. And so we need, um, there, there are, why I say there are more uh, bad apples than good apples, because if there, was, if there were only a few bad apples, <clears throat> then why don't all the good apples get together and get rid of those bad apples? You know, if you're, if you're a team player, you know, if you're on a basketball team or a football team and, and one of the players isn't doing his job, everybody gets together and goes to the coach and says, hey, man, you know, so-and-so is not being a team player. Put him on the bench. So that's, that's what the good players and team players will do. But these good cops are afraid to tell on the bad cops. So they just turn – they don't participate in that activity, but they won't snitch because they, they fear that retaliation. So we need some kind of a system – where cops can come forward anonymously or whatnot 
and and blow the whistle and tell. Just like we have, they, they have tipsters anonymous. Like if there's a crime happening, and uh, and the and the cops can't solve it, they get on TV and say, hey, you know, if you have any information, you know, call this number anonymously. Leave us, some, you know, some information. You know, you know, you you don't have to leave your name or whatever. You just report it because they're not, you know, they they can't go in the neighborhood and, and get information because they know people there have the information, but they're afraid to come forward. And they're, and they're afraid to be seen talking to the police in, in fear of retaliation. So, you know, call this number anonymously. Well, the police need the same kind of thing where they can report on each other. Because the cops, you know, the, the good cops, seriously, they don't want their badges tarnished by, by one rogue cop. But, but they're so afraid that if they tell, you know, um, like, like you look at, uh, let's, let's take George Floyd, for example. Now the Minneapolis Police Department has a very bad reputation because of one guy named um, Derek Chauvin who put his knee on Floyd's neck. Are, are there more bad cops in, in, in the uh, Minneapolis PD? Of course there are. But are there some really good, decent cops there? I'm sure there are. But that one action of that one cop has tarnished the whole department. It's put a dark veil over them. And Derek Chauvin had 18 complaints against him in his personnel record. That means somebody complained or different people complained 18 times and it was never addressed. So if 18 people came forward and filed a complaint against him, you know they had to be more that, that went unreported. You know what I mean? So this is what happens. And, and, and you know some of those cops on the force knew what he was doing those 18 times but they were afraid to tell. This is why it's important. And another thing that we need in terms of the police is we need a national registry, which is not in existence with the police. Um, we also need one for priests too, who abuse kids. Um, and that, because when, when a police officer does get fired or terminated from uh, his department or her department, what do they do? They go to another police department and get rehired. And they continue the same behavior, just like you hear about these about these priests who have abused kids. They get shifted around from church to church, and it just continues. They, they, they don't have any punishment. Um, there is a national registry for for child sex abusers, right? You know, so if you if you abuse some little kid in New York City, um, and you try to go get a job at some uh, kindergarten in Los Angeles. They just go on, on the National Registry and see your name there. Uh-uh, we're not hiring you. So that record follows you all over the country. It's, it's a National Registry. We need the same thing for rogue cops so they can't go from department to department. I want to go back to something that you said a bit ago. You talked about the fact that you own rogues of people who you've talked out of KKK. And when you talk about this, you say that sometimes you get asked about how you can keep this stuff, why you don't destroy it or trash it or burn it. This is Roger Kelly's robe right here. That's a symbol I was telling you about. Yeah, and with the, with the blood in the middle of the cross. Yeah, and this is it's a, his hood. This is his hood and his mask. The mask has three snaps. You can unsnap it off, and the face is exposed under the hood. I mean, it's it's a, it's startling to see it. Uh, Why? Well, no, not really. Don't don't think of it that way. For for me. For no, me. no, no. You you shouldn't even think of it that way because you know what? You probably know people who feel the same way. They might dress in a suit and tie or, or a Hawaiian shirt and Bermuda shorts 
or or a uniform. So don't don't you know this this is nothing but material, material. That's that's all it is. We don't have to worry about what's on the person's body. We have to worry about what's in their heart and what's in their mind, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Because I would rather see somebody in that Robin Hood and know exactly how they feel. That that Robin Hood speaks to me. It tells me how they feel rather than know somebody in a suit and tie or a police officer's uniform and just assume I know how they feel and, and they're really stabbing me in the back. I wanted to ask a question because you've kept it, um, because you you respond to people who ask you why you don't destroy it or trash it and burn it um, by saying that, and I'm, I'm quoting you here, as shameful as it is, this is part of American history. You don't burn our history regardless. You keep it, the good, the bad, or the ugly. That's right. With that quote in mind, I can't help thinking about our current debates about Confederate monuments, or even monuments to people who have been pivotal in American history, whose attitudes and actions on race, in retrospect, Jason uh, Jefferson's slave ownership, for example, uh, during their lifetimes, strikes us now as perverse. How are you thinking about this debate, tear down the monuments? Um, and what does the debate uh, indicate to you about the state of civil discourse? The Holocaust Museum. They have a lot of the shoes of the people who were put in the ovens and in the gas chambers and all that. A lot of terrible things happened to six million people. Why do they keep those things? Why do they have that museum? Should, sh shouldn't those things be destroyed? No. It's part of Jewish history. It's a shameful, ugly part of Jewish history, the, the destruction of six million human beings. But it's important that we see that and we learn from it. So it's never repeated again. That's why I keep these same things. You know, um, dis destroying our history, you can't erase the things that have happened. We, sh we need to learn from those things. So they, sh they should not be destroyed. They should, they should be placed somewhere where people can be educated by them so they don't uh, repeat themselves. Now, to the monuments. Um, here's what I think. We went to war against Great Britain. And we won that war, which is why we celebrate the 4th of July. There are plenty of white people in this country. In fact, most white people in this country are of British descent because the, the Brits were the first ones to come here, right? They were trying to escape the tyranny of the king and they landed at Plymouth Rock and so forth, all right? They, the, white, the, the white people of English or British descent here in this country right now they have ancestors who fought in the Revolutionary War. And those ancestors fought against us. But I'm sure they love their ancestors and, and that's, because that's their heritage. But yet, they don't go out here and build statues to King George III or fly the Union Jack. Why? Because their former country, their ancestors lost the war. The loser does not get to build his statues or, or fly his flags on the winner's property. We went to war against Japan when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. There are plenty of Japanese Americans here today who have ancestors who fought, uh, Japanese ancestors who fought against us. I'm sure they love their ancestors, as they should. Right? That's their heritage. But yet they don't go out here and build uh, statues to Emperor Hirohito and fly the Japanese flag, Japan lost. 
We went to war against Germany. There are plenty of German Americans in this country, and you know they have ancestors who um, who were under the uh, dictatorship of Adolf Hitler. If you if you were German, y- y- you were under Hitler unless you escaped, regardless of what your beliefs were, because he was a dictator. But yet these German Americans don't go out here and build statues to Hitler or Joseph Goebbels or any of those people and fly swastikas unless they're neo Nazis or something. Um, why? Because their German ancestors lost the war. The loser does not get to build his statues or fly his flags on the winner's land. Well, guess what? The Confederacy lost the war. This is this is the USA, not the CSA, Confederate States of America. It's the United States of America. The Confederacy lost the war. They need to get over it. And those statues need to come down. I'm not saying tear them down and destroy them. I don't believe in that because that's also a part of American history. It's a shameful, ugly part of American history. The Civil War was fought over slavery. Everybody in the North knows that. In the South, they don't say it was fought over slavery in the schools. They say it was fought over states' rights. Yeah, it was fought over states' rights. The state's right to own a slave. All right? So because they didn't want to lose any money. They were making tons of money off free labor, off the backs of slaves. They didn't have to work, you know, just beat people and make them pick cotton and tobacco and whatever else, all right? So now you're going to take away their income by taking away their free labor. That's why they, they fought the Civil War, all right? So the South has a lot to be proud of in their heritage. Slavery is not one of them. And so... You don't need those Confederate statues. You don't need you don't need that flag flying, or 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 buildings named after slave owners. Take the statues down, put them in a museum, or put them in a Confederate memorial park. Go build a park, put your statues over there, and people who want to go honor their ancestors can go to the park and do whatever they want to do. All right, it's part of our history. Anybody who knows American history knows that there were blacks who also fought in the Confederacy. My ancestors fought in the Confederacy. Even though I was born in Chicago, my parents are from Virginia. Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. Okay, I am a descendant of slaves. Slaves had to fight for their slave masters. My ancestors fought in the Confederacy. Do I honor my ancestors? Absolutely. Without them, I wouldn't be here. Do I honor the Confederacy? Absolutely not. But I would say take down those those, uh, statues, put them in a Confederate memorial park, and, and people who want to go honor them, go honor them. But you don't build your statues on the winner's land. Thank you very much, Daryl. I will see you on change.minds.com. And I assume that that's where others can find you if they want to learn more about you and your work. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode on Changing Minds. If you're just tuning in for the first time this week, please check out the previous episode where Daryl shares his life story and we talk about the value of civil discourse as an ethic of engagement. We'll be back next week with the third and final episode of the Changing Minds series with guest Bill Ottman, the CEO of Minds.com, to talk about how tech is changing our minds and the possibilities for and the limitations of engaging in civil discourse online. 